0: I'm excited for tonight, but before we start our message, I want to ask you a question. How many of you struggle with having courage? Let's be honest here, all right, stepping out of your comfort zone. How many of you is that a hard thing for you to do, to, to get out of what's comfortable and to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable? Yeah, Jacob is raising his hand. I personally, one of my struggles, um, one of the things that God has taken me on a journey with over the years is my struggle with being timid and wanting to stay in my comfort zone all the time. And in sixth grade, uh, the Lord was really stirring my heart to step out of my comfort zone once. So I tried out for this musical called Bye Bye Birdie. And uh, maybe you heard of that musical. So I put myself out there. I tried out. And I got the part of teen chorus, which just means that you stink. So you can stand in the back and sing. Uh, But there's this really cool part. Okay, So to explain the story a little bit, the musical, it's the story about this uh, rock and roll star named Conrad Birdie. This guy gets drafted into the army, and before he is going to go to the army, his agent gets this idea that he should do one big publicity stunt before he leaves. And that stunt is to kiss a girl on national television. All right, So there's this, uh, this girl that like, uh, wins this contest to be the girl who's kissed, and she just got a new boyfriend, which back then in the 60s or whenever it was, they called it Going Steady. Okay, So this boy's name was Hugo Peabody and he had this really cool part in the musical where he would run out, and right when the guy was about to kiss the girl, he punches him and says, brace yourself, Conrad Birdie, and this older student got that part. Um, obviously, I didn't get the part, and I didn't get the part of the cool guy who got to kiss the girl, but I was a teen chorus, and uh, so there's one day when the student had to be gone that played Hugo, and well, actually multiple days. He was gone quite a bit, and people would always volunteer to do that part for him, to stand in for him. It was kind of a big deal if you got the, the opportunity to do that. I always just kind of sat there timidly, didn't really want to put myself out there because he has to run out like all crazy with his legs flying. It's really dramatic, and that's not my personality. But anyways, one day towards the end of the uh, rehearsal season, I said, hey, I'll do it. And I remember I was standing at stage, whatever this is over here, And I was so nervous. My heart was beating so fast for this one little part. And I run out there all dramatically like I'm supposed to, with my legs kicking up in the air. And then I get there and I forget the line. And I just stand there. And I would just turn around and walk off stage during rehearsal. And seriously, I've never seen people laugh so hard at someone else. It was literally the most embarrassing moment of my life by far. Like, I just felt like I wanted to die because, you know, I put myself out there. I was already a pretty timid guy, and then I just looked like a complete idiot. Uh, so anyways, the reason I share that story tonight is tonight we're going to talk about courage. And to be honest, as embarrassing as that story was, I cherish that story. I cherish that, uh, just that moment in my life because I stepped out of my comfort zone, even though it failed miserably. It's like the worst possible um, the worst possible outcome of that stepping out of faith and faith, I cherish it because I stepped out of my comfort zone. I did something that just wasn't natural to me. And, and it makes you feel good when you have courage and you do something that scares you. And tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus calls us to, to be courageous, to, to get out of our comfort zone and, and specifically to resist conformity to this world. Uh, we're going to talk about this idea that Jesus... Calls us in the midst of a culture that's not Christian anymore to to be courageous and to hold on to our faith and and the reason that courage is important to talk about as a Christian there's there's three reasons that I came up with and the first thing is this is Christians are called to be a people of courage that's that's part of being a follower of Christ it goes hand in hand with following Jesus is being a person of courage being a person who steps out in faith to be saved to become a follower of Jesus. It starts with putting your faith in Jesus. It starts with faith. And faith, a lot of times, is is doing something that scares you or putting your trust in something that you can't see. So courage is a central tenet of the Christian faith. And the second reason I think it's important to talk about courage is I think only in this space where you're courageous and you get out of your comfort zone and you do things that are hard, only in this space where you find true joy, I promise you the things that are The very hardest things to do in your life are the things that will bring you the most joy when you do it. If you stay inside the boat, so to speak, if you stay inside your comfort zone your whole life, you will not be joyful, I promise you. The greatest joys of my life are when I step out in faith, my heart's beating so fast, I don't know what's going to happen, and God comes through, and God shows himself to be faithful. And then the third reason I think it's important to talk about courage is if we are going to be effective as disciple makers in the 21st century, In the the United States of America, then we need to have courage. God calls us to have courage because we can't just privatize our faith and and withdraw because people don't like the Christian faith as much as they used to. But instead, God calls us to step out with loving boldness and be courageous and engage the people around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why I think courage is important. And as I was saying, uh, we live in what we could call a post-Christian world or a post-Christian society. 50 to 75 years ago, Christianity was assumed among most Americans. At least it was assumed that you believed the basic ideas of the Judeo-Christian value system. It was assumed, but but today that's not the case. People have rejected the Judeo-Christian way of thinking, at least our culture in large part has. An average person you meet on the street, you can assume that they're not a Christian, and that wasn't always the case. But today, I typically, most people I meet are not Christians when I meet them on the street. It's always kind of a cool thing when you find a Christian, like, "Whoa, that person's a Christian too!" That, that's really cool. It makes you feel like, "Hey, that's someone that you know gets what I'm talking about." But today we don't see that as much. Where you just uh, meet a regular person on the street and they're a Christian. And also to make matters more difficult, so it's not only that people aren't following Jesus as much as they were, but but to take it even further. Judeo-Christian values, and when I say Judeo-Christian, I'm talking about like Jewish and Christian because the Old Testament is the Jewish holy book, all right? I could explain that more later, but not tonight. But anyways, the Judeo-Christian value system is not only seen as something that's not the mainstream, but it's also seen as wrong. It's seen as backwards. It's seen as unloving. The Judeo-Christian value system actually produces hostility within people. When you tell them that you believe that that what the Bible says is true, sometimes people get hostile, they get offended by that. And part of this, so there's this chasm that's happening between the church and the world. You know, I said 50 to 75 years ago, the church really dominated society. That's not the case anymore. I think it's good for some reasons, which we could get into, but, but the church does not uh, occupy this space of being, or being mainstream. So what's happened is there's a chasm between the church and just a regular person. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. One, it's on Christians because of this chasm. This this chasm is partially on Christians because as the world has embraced more biblical ideas about uh, just morality and, and ways that are considered right and pure, some Christians thought it was best to try to gain political power to get people to change their minds on that. They thought if we could fill the Senate in the House of Representatives, in the White House, with people who believe what we believe, then we can control people and get them to come back to Christian beliefs. And we've seen that's not effective. That actually creates more hostility. Whenever you have Christians trying to force their way on other people, in politics there's a backlash. And then all of a sudden someone who is very opposite of Christian values Gets elected. That's what typically happens. And and people feel like they're being marginalized, they're being attacked by Christians. Sometimes Christians think it's best: hey, if a company does something I don't want them to do, oh, let's go boycott that company. And that's not effective. That only creates a barrier between us and the world. So part of it's on Christians, but then part of it's also on the world. It's not just on Christians. Uh, so the world has embraced this thinking that if the church embraces an idea that something is sinful or something is wrong. Like, hey, we think that uh, looking at pornography is sinful. That's just an example. If we view that in that way, then, then church people or Christians must view people who look at pornography as people that they don't like and people that they hate. Does that make sense? People have confused viewing something as, un, or viewing something as sinful as hating that person. So it's on both ends of the spectrum. The church has created a chasm through trying to gain power and force people into our way of thinking. And the world has embraced this idea that if you say something is sinful or wrong, then that means you hate me. So what's happened is there's this chasm. So, so with this chasm, what you see is a lot of times when people are talking about this stuff, it's on Facebook, and people are throwing grenades at each other, these virtual grenades just fighting. And I'm just watching like, this is horrible. I want to get out of here. That's what happens a lot of times. People talk about this stuff on social media. They fight about it. And then when we are actually in the real world, we don't talk about it because we're too scared to fight with people in person. That's what's happened. So we've kind of withdrawn from the conversation. We don't engage people anymore. We say, hey, I'm going to do my faith in private. I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to get in a fight with anybody. But Jesus calls us to a different way. He doesn't call us to fight with the world. He doesn't call us to withdraw from the world. But he calls us to lovingly engage the world. He's called us to a different way. And we're going to see that tonight in the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. So last week we started this series And we talked about, so this whole series, the idea of it, is that God has called us to leave a legacy on this planet. God has not called us to just, uh, or just live life, get a job, get married, then retire, and then safely arrive at death. God has not called us to that, but instead, God has called us to leave a legacy. God has called us to be a people who leave an impact on the planet. And last week, we saw one way we can leave a legacy, and that's through Daniel's example in chapters 1 and 2. And what Daniel does is he is a person of influence. He influences the people around him, and he does that through multiple ways. One way he does that is through being holy, and we'll talk about that more tonight. The second way he does that is by being really good at what he does. We talked about being a person of excellence. And the third way he did that was through being a person of the Spirit. And now tonight, we're going to shift gears a bit, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3. And we're not going to look at Daniel tonight. We're not going to look at that person But instead, we're going to look at his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their example in Daniel 3 of how you can be a person who leaves a legacy by resisting the patterns of the world and at the same time lovingly engaging the world. So like I said uh, last week, the book of Daniel is right after Ezekiel. It's right before Hosea. And it's a book written by Daniel. And the context of this story or this book is that Daniel was... An Israelite, so God's chosen people and his friends were Israelites. And Israel uh, was sacked by Babylon, and they were exiled into Babylon. They were exiled all over the world, all over their world. And Daniel and his friends are living in Babylon. And so they're living amidst the people who don't agree with the way that they view the world. They don't agree with the way that Daniel and his friends view God. So they're trying to figure out how to live in this hostile or just in different environment to their faith. So anyways, that's where we're, or tonight we're going to look at Daniel 3 and, and jump into this story again. But I want to pray before we do that. God, we thank you for your presence tonight. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, I pray that tonight that you would speak to us. God, I pray that your Spirit would just have your way in this place. And I pray that Daniel 3 would come alive to us. I pray that it wouldn't just be a, a Bible story, but but that it would come to life and it would engage our hearts and show us how to live in this world as Christians. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to read a lot of verses tonight. It's all in Daniel 3, but it's quite a bit of verses. So we're just going to go about 10 verses at a time, and then I'm going to draw a point from each of these sections. We're going to start with Daniel 3, 1 through 7. And what's happening here is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is trying to get Daniel's friends to bow down to an idol. And they're not having it. So let's look and see what happens here. It says this in verse 1 King, or king Nebuchadnezzar made an, an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, or breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the, or the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to this dedication of this image that the king had set up. Then the the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and oh, I already said that. And this wait, did I say it? it? says it twice in a row. But anyways, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, or pipe lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down, and they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, so I have a profound point. Like, you probably couldn't find this if you read this on your own. This is the first point. The world worships false gods. The world worships false God. So this is an interesting picture we're seeing here. So King Nebuchadnezzar decides to make this image, and then he decides that everyone should worship this thing that he just created. So the king decided that something was valuable, and then he gathered the powerful in his culture to enforce the worship of this image that he set up. And as I read this, I can't help but see similarities to our world today. Oftentimes, those who are in power whether they be politicians on either the left or the right, the wealthy, the media, or Hollywood elite, they decide that something is valuable, that that something is right, and then they ask us to worship the idol along with them. And you may say, oh, we don't worship idols today. You know, that was what ancient and less progressive people did. They worshiped these weird stones. But it's important to understand that that, Or while we don't worship these images, we don't worship these statues. Some people do, but for the most part, we don't in this room. Uh, We do worship things other than God. Because an idol is this. Uh, Put the definition on the screen. So an idol is anything that you value more than God. So Timothy Keller, I've talked about him a lot. He's written an incredible book on, on idols called Counterfeit Gods. And I would encourage you to read that. But idolatry is valuing something more than you value God. And humans by nature, constantly struggle with this. We struggle with worshiping things other than God. And, and theologian John Calvin said this. He said our hearts are idol factories. Like We're constantly creating idols in our hearts. And, and the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He, he's specifically talking about the depravity of the world and, and the depravity that each of us fall into when it comes to specifically purity and sex and our propensity to worship things other than God. And this is what he says in verse 24 and 25. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the verse I want you to really get. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we often exchange God, our creator, for the created. And we often take God's good gifts that he's given us and we worship them instead of worshiping God. And I've said this numerous times here if you've been here, but sin is not just doing bad things. It's not. You're like, whoa, it's not. No, sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is ultimately making good things into ultimate things. So it's taking God's gifts and not just thanking him for them and enjoying them in the proper way. Or the proper proportion to or to how much we enjoy God, but instead it's taking God's gift and putting them on the throne of our hearts and deciding that these things are the most important things in my life. So for an example, uh, we take sex, which is a great gift from God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for sex. It's good inside marriage. But we take it, we put it on the throne of our heart, and then all of a sudden we start giving in to sexual immorality. Or for another example, we take academia, we take the The chance to learn and and to become more knowledgeable and to prepare for our career. A good thing from the Lord. And we set it up on the throne of our hearts. And all of a sudden we're giving in to the sin of putting our school before Jesus. And our relationship with God falls to the wayside while we're in college. Let's use another example. We take food. I love food. I like beat ups. I'm going to eat some food tonight. All right. But we take food. We put it on the throne of our hearts and it becomes gluttony. Or we take success, something that God wants you to be successful. We talked about that last week with Daniel. Daniel was excellent at what he did. God wants you to be successful. It gives you an opportunity to be an influence for the world, or to the world. But sometimes we take success, we put it on the throne of our hearts, and all of a sudden we have dads who are not present in their home because they're too focused on their career, and they're they're neglecting their children. You see, God gives us good things, but then we make them ultimate things, and it becomes sin. Humans are are constant creators of idols we struggle with worshipping idols so here in daniel 3 the powers at b try to get the people to worship something that they created and everyone worships it that's what it says everyone falls down and worships it the question we have to ask ourselves as we consider this is is what is the world asking you to worship what is the world asking you to worship is it comfort i struggle with that i like to be comfortable is it comfort Is it success? Is the world asking you to worship romantic bliss and this idea that Prince Charming is going to come save you someday? Or is the world asking you to worship academic achievement? What is something that is fighting for the first place in your heart? We all have those things. I can think of things right now. God's like downloading it in my heart. Daniel, you struggle with this. You struggle with this. There's things each of us have a propensity to put before God. So that's the question that Daniel's friends had to consider. They had to consider, am I going to worship or put something before God? And let's see what they do in in verses 8 through 18. It says this, Therefore at the time certain Chaldeans, which is just Babylonians, came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. These guys are some kiss-ups, right? And he says, You, O king, have made a decree that every man who lives or who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, I'm not going to read all this again, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Now get that. This is something we're going to talk about a lot tonight. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, you know, like we talked about last week, a great leader, really just a stand-up leader, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve or serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, etc., to fall down and worship the image... (laughs) That I've made well and good. He's given them another chance to do it. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh wait, did I skip something? Yeah. Where am I at? Wait, what? Oh, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So he gives them another chance. He says, I'm going to burn you if you don't do this. Are you sure you don't uh, want to, to worship this great image I've created? And these guys are ballers, all right? They say this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this question, in this matter. Do you see Christians responding that way today? When, when people, or when their faith is attacked, do they say, we have no need to answer you. We're not going to fight with you. We're not going to engage in a Facebook debate. No, a lot of times we don't. Christians are angry a lot of times. We're guilty of that. But these guys show us a different way. All right, verse 17, if this be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, then be it known to you, O king, that we're still not going to serve your gods or worship that golden image that you set up. All right, that was a lot of scripture. The second point tonight is this. When we are faced with pressure to worship false gods, we are called to choose courage in the midst of fear and to lovingly resist so the story takes an interesting turn here in verses 8 through 18. We see in verses 1 through 7 that those in power, and mainly King Nebuchadnezzar, decide that this, that this image, this arbitrary image, is worthy of worship, and they tried to get everyone to worship it. And most people went along with it. But Daniel's friends refused. In the midst of fear, in the midst of threats, in the midst of the possibility of death, they chose courage. And it says in verse 12 that these men, just like I said, paid no attention to the king's Decree. And the reality that they paid no attention and did not join in on this worship caused the Babylonians to be offended and to attempt to force them to worship this image. And King Nebuchadnezzar even threatened them with death. He gave them another chance. He said, Hey, you know, I'm gonna kill you if you don't do this. You have another chance. Do you want to worship this? And then again it says that they did not give in. They didn't but the cool thing is they didn't respond with hostility, like I said, they did not respond with outrage. They They did not respond with arguing. But they just said, hey, hey, we don't need to answer you in this matter because our God will deliver us. They had such an unshakable faith. They had this courage that was just rooted in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Well, not Jesus for them. You know, They would think of it as Yahweh. But hey, we know Jesus is Yahweh, right? But anyway, so they had this, this confidence that, that their God, Yahweh, would deliver them. They did not cower in fear. But the cool thing is they had this humble boldness about them. They didn't respond in pride. They did not argue, but they simply, I think, responded in a humble way and just said, hey, we're not going to do it, and we don't care what the consequences are. So Pastor Matt Chandler says that that because, just like I talked about, because our world has become more hostile, Christians often face two temptations, two temptations we face as the world is more hostile towards our faith. The first thing is to withdraw, just hey, we're gonna run away. We're not gonna engage anyone. Like we're just gonna do our Christianity thing in laying auditorium. We're not gonna talk to anyone outside these walls about Jesus because we don't want them to know that we're Christians. That's the first thing we do. Second thing, and it's very similar is we privatize our faith. We just begin to do it at home. You know, we just, you know, watch a sermon online, just kinda do our own thing, read our Bible once a week, kinda just do our own private Christian faith, but but God has not called us to either of these ways. And we see this with or the example of these three men. Instead of responding by withdrawing or privatizing or arguing, as we talked about, instead we're called to respond with humble boldness, covered with a supernatural grace and love. And they chose not even to pay attention. They chose not even to defend themselves, but to accept the consequences of their choices and to embrace humility Compassion and love, and at the same time, embrace courage, boldness, conviction, and resistance. So, these men show us that, that when we're faced with pressure to conform, we're not called to bow to fear, but instead, we're called to embrace courage and love and stand on the truth of God's word and what He's called us to. So, Ambrosie Redmoon, in his book No Peaceful Warriors, says this courage is not the absence of fear. But instead, it's the judgment that something is more important than fear. Is Jesus more important to you than fear? I struggle with fear, guys. I really, really struggle with fear. I struggle with anxiety. I've talked about that in here. And Jesus is asking me that question. Am I more important than your fear? And guys, if there's no fear, there can't be courage. Because, because courage is, is standing your ground even in the midst of fear. So, when you're faced with the pressure to conform or you're faced with uncertain circumstances, the question is will you choose to be courageous and not give in to this fear and instead decide that pleasing God and living a life holy unto Him is more important than conforming to your friends? That's a question we've got to ask ourselves. So, how many of you have seen the movie We Bought a Zoo? It came out in 2011. It's right when I was graduating high school or right after that. It's an incredible movie, one of my favorite movies, one of my all-time favorite movies. If you just want to like have a sap session, just watch it. You know, It's like, this is us. I mean, not really, but it makes you cry. Uh, and I like to cry sometimes with the movies. Um, but anyways, one of my favorite scenes is when uh, the owner of the zoo, played by Matt Damon, who's just a stud. Did you guys see his part in Thor, Reg- Ragnarok? That was a really good part. You guys remember that? Yeah, he was uh, playing Loki. But anyways, that's this. this or just, Besides the point. But anyways, Matt Damon has this conversation with his son. His son likes a girl, all right? And, and Matt Damon's sitting on the ground, and his son comes in all depressed. And, and Matt asks him the question, or the character asks him the question. He said, hey, what happened to you and this girl? And the boy responds by saying that he didn't know. And that's, you know, oftentimes what happens in relationships. We don't know what we did, but we did something wrong. And this kid's only like 14, but, but he says, hey, I must, not, uh, or I must have not listened to her or something. I don't even know. And he says, it's like you embarrass yourself if you say something to her, but you embarrass yourself if you don't. So he's struggling with, you know, what every 15-year-old boy does. Like, should I talk to her about it? Should I just play it cool? I feel like either way I'm going to embarrass myself. And the dad responds by saying this, this, this quote here. He says, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage, 20 seconds of embarrassing bravery, and I promise you something great will come of it. That's all you need, guys. It's not like you have to be this, this bold warrior everywhere you go, but, some, but when God calls you to step out, when God calls you to be courageous, when God calls you to be brave, step out and trust him and watch greatness come from that move. I've seen it time and time again in my own life. I think this is so true. When we're faced with fear, we're not called to cower to it, but instead we're called to have 20 seconds of insane courage and to say, no, I'm not going to conform to the patterns of my world Instead, I'm going to be the son or daughter that God has called me to be. And we will never be joyful, satisfied, or content as a Christian unless we embrace this lifestyle of 20 seconds of insane courage. So Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world. we read this last week, but it's good. But instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So God is calling us to this lifestyle of non-conformity to the patterns of the world, but instead of lifestyle of transformation and a lifestyle of submitting ourselves to God day in and day out. So what does this look like for you, okay? We're talking about this idea, but it kind of seems theoretical. What does this look like for you as a college student at the University of Northern Iowa? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I, I thought about it today. So here, here's a couple ideas I have. The, the first one is this. Uh, when the world decides that there's a new way of thinking that's right, that is contrary To scripture, you, instead of conforming to that idea, just because it's new, uh, instead you commit yourself to the way of old, to the way of the scriptures, to an ancient way, the way of Jesus Christ, okay? That's the first thing, so it's about thinking. Uh, The second thing is, and, and this is similar, when the world is tossed to and fro and embraces new ideas every single decade, which is what I've seen in my short life is the world embraces a new idea about this, about that. They just changed their mind about everything, and we're supposed to go along with it. Instead of going along with the tides of culture, you lovingly resist, and you choose to follow Jesus. Just like Daniel's friends, you pay no attention to where the world's being tossed around, but instead you stay grounded on the Word of God. And when the world says that you, that doesn't matter how you live as long as you don't hurt anybody else, which is a common thing I hear, uh, Instead of viewing it that way, viewing like, hey, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter, our morality doesn't matter as long as it doesn't hurt other people, instead of embracing that idea, you say that Jesus has bought or bought me with a price and what I do with my body matters. A fourth way is when the world says that the most important things in life are success and comfort, you instead choose the way of Jesus and you lay down your life for other people. You say that the place that I'm going to find joy, the place that I... I'm going to find satisfaction is not through attaining comfort and success and stuff for myself, but instead by laying down my life for others and serving other people. Instead of privatizing yourself, instead of choosing the way of individualization, you say, I'm going to engage people. I'm going to lay down my life for other people. When the world chooses polarization and fighting, which we love to do these days, instead you choose to be an agent of peace, You choose to be an agent of peace. And you don't seek to influence others by persuading them to a political viewpoint or by gaining power over them, but instead you try to introduce people to Jesus. You try to introduce people to the one who loves their soul. People are not an argument to be won, but they're someone to be loved. And while the world chooses to be indifferent, about injustice and indifferent towards their neighbor. You put your headphones in, you just go down to class, you ignore everybody. I did that as a freshman, especially it was bad. I was, you know, I'm an introvert, and I just like put my headphones in, I ignore people. You know, why the world chooses to embrace that lifestyle, you say, engaging my neighbor is worth it, loving my neighbor is worth it. So those are some ideas that I have. I'm sure there's plenty plenty more, but in summary, we... or we can leave a legacy for Christ by refusing to live our lives like everyone else, but still engaging people who think differently than us and, and who act differently than us. But it's important to know that you're not called to resist the patterns of the world on your own. It's not up to you all on your own, all right? There's someone who's there to stand with you in the fire. There's someone who's there to be with you as you resist. There's someone who's there to help you, and we see that at the end of our story. So let's read it, verse 19 through 30. You know, Nebuchadnezzar gets angry, all right? He's filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed. You know, he had like the angry emoji. That was his face. And he was just staring at them with that anger. And he said, heat it up seven times more than it was usually heated. I think the furnace would be fine if it wasn't heated up seven times more. But for whatever reason, he decided that was a good idea. And then it says that the army bound these three men, cast them into the furnace, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and they were thrown into the furnace. And then in verse 22, it says, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that was smart, King Nebuchadnezzar. You angry man, you got your people killed. All right, verse 23. And these three men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselor, did we not cast these three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then they came out from the fire, and the king's people gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. And the hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no, sm- or no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, so he changes his mind now. Therefore, like what a weird dude. All right, so therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, doing exactly what Jesus would ask him to do. Thank you. No, that's not how you do it. But anyways, in their house be laid in ruins, for there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted them in the province of Babylon. Okay, this guy has some issues. He's a narcissist. All right, so point three. We can resist the worship of false gods because Jesus stands with us. And we know that through our courage and love, People will be drawn to this king, to King Jesus. Daniel's friends chose to lovingly resist the king and face the consequences of their actions. And, and he throws them into the fire. And then what happens next is profound. When he looks into the fire, he sees not three men, but he sees a man who looks like a son of the gods. And we know that the son of the gods that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the Old Testament. I'll tell you that right now. He's in the Old Testament. He's right here. He's in the fire with them. And then he wants to talk with them, and he even starts to praise their God. And he makes a decree that there's no one who can speak against Yahweh, for there's no other God who can rescue in the way that theirs did. There's some incredible principles to be drawn from the end of this story. The first thing is we can boldly resist for Christ's sake and suffer for for his name because we know that he will be with us. And no matter what our consequences are here on earth, he won't leave us hanging, but Jesus will walk with us through the fire. Jesus will help us in our time of need. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is encouraging his followers that there's going to be authorities who bring you to questioning, who want to beat you for your faith, and he encourages them with this profound encouragement. Matthew 10:19 he says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For, for what you are to say is going to be given to you in that hour. So Jesus has called us to be bold, But we must know that he's going to be with us. He's going to give you the words to say. He's going to help you to lovingly engage your neighbor. In Luke 12, 4 through 7, this is amazing, guys. Get this. If you just get this verse, these verses tonight. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. And yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, that's kind of the part that's scary, but let's get to the good part. Verse 6 Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. And why even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So I read that because because another principle we need to get is that although people can hurt us here on earth, there's no one that can hurt us in a way that's lasting. We don't fear the ones who can kill our body, but we fear the one whose opinion actually matters. We fear the opinion of the one who knows every hair on your head. He's numbered them. And he loves you so deeply. We fear his opinion because it's the one that matters. Hebrews 13, five through six says, "Keep keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We could just talk about that all night. We're gonna leave that over here. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And what can man do to me? Ooh, I love the boldness of of whoever wrote this book, Hebrews, we don't know, but I will not fear for what can man do to me. So we don't seek security from this world, but instead we take heart in the fact that the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jesus is not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us, but he's going to be with us every step of the way. And even if someone hurts us, Jesus has purchased our eternal salvation. And the last thing we need to get, and I think this might be the most important, is when we resist conforming to the patterns of this world. People will come to the feet of Jesus. People do not want to see Christians who live like everyone else. We talked about this last week. The the most common view that people have of Christians in our country is that we're hypocrites. We don't actually practice what we preach. I tell you, when people see Christians doing what the Bible says, you know, loving their neighbor and being holy unto God, when people see that, they're compelled they say, what is it about this Jesus that causes them to lay down their lives for his name? As people see us do this, they're going to come to know Jesus. The way to reach our campus is not to be like the world. The way to reach our campus is to actually do what the book says. I'm telling you, when there's students, that, the students on this campus, there's a lot of Christians on this campus. There's a pretty good campus ministry community. And yet, our campus remains largely Unreached. And I believe one of the ways we can reach our campus is actually obeying Jesus. God's called us into that. God has called us to be like Christ. God has called us to this. So in summary, I think we need to be so caught up in God's love and so confident in his power, so confident in who he is and his ability to save us that that when our beliefs are attacked or people disagree with us, we don't get offended. We don't defend ourselves. We don't fight. Like our goal is not to go into our biology classes and have a throwdown with our professor about evolution. That is not our goal. Some of you have done that and it's okay. We forgive you. It's okay to stand up for your beliefs but I'm just saying God has not called us to get offended. We're not called to be offended. Offense has no place at the foot of the cross because we've offended Jesus in the worst of ways and he still gave his life for us. And that's what we're called to do for people on this planet who disagree with us is to lay down our lives for them and only through that are they going to come to know Jesus? Not through your persuasive arguments. God has called us to that, to, to be so grounded in who he is and his love and his power that, that we're not defensive, but, but we're freed up to love people, to engage people, even when they don't agree with us. So we need to choose this way of what I call loving resistance. We don't conform to what our friends are doing. We don't allow what our friends are doing to sway our devotion to Jesus. At the same time, we love people with no strings attached. And we watch God, work on hearts and wait for an opportunity to share the love of Jesus when the time is right. We don't argue, but instead we love and we show people the way of Jesus. So if the worship team would come up. The main idea tonight is this. If we want to leave a legacy for Jesus, if you take anything home, take this. If we want to leave a legacy for Jesus, we must courageously resist conformity to this world while still lovingly engaging the world. With that said, I, I think, just as I was praying, I just feel like God's brought three different groups of people in here tonight. I think, I think there's, there's three different groups, and I just think he wants to speak to each of these groups. So kind of listen as I talk about each of these, because I think all of us are going to fall in one, because God wants to speak to you. Some of you are here tonight, and, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. Maybe you grew up in the church. I don't know, but you consider yourself to, to be a, a Christian. But if you're honest, just one of the biggest struggles for you is you've struggled to, to resist conformity to this world. You've struggled to not just blend in with your surroundings. You're kind of like a chameleon. Wherever you're at, you just blend in with wherever you're at. If you're at church, you're going to act like a church kid. When you're with your friends that don't go to church, you're going to act like them. And your life doesn't look a whole lot different than the average person on this planet. And tonight, Jesus just wants you to do one thing. He wants you to encounter his love. Because I think the reason that, that you're struggling with this idea of conforming to the patterns of this world, is you haven't seen that Jesus is so attractive. He, he, and he loves you so much that he's worth it. He's worth resisting conformity. He's worth standing out. He's worth being different. He's worth being rejected. So tonight I want to encourage you to encounter the love of Jesus that looks at you and says, while you are still a sinner, I died for you. And get so caught up in the beauty of that truth that it stirs you to say, Jesus, just as you laid down your life for me, I'm laying down my life for you. So I want to encourage you with that tonight. I think there's a second group of us here. And you don't really struggle with conforming, but you struggle with being a jerk. (laughs) I could say it bluntly. You don't struggle with conforming as much as you struggle with, with fighting with people when they attack your faith. You feel this need to defend Jesus. Like he's called you to be his defender and his attorney on this planet. And honestly, that comes from not viewing Jesus as being someone who's strong enough to defend himself. Jesus can defend himself. He can work on hearts. He can talk to people in their sleep. Jesus, like, hey, we have a like one-up, right? Like, like, we got the king of kings and the lord of lords on our side. So you don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to fight with people. But instead, choose the way of Jesus who said, turn the other cheek. and then Give them the other cheek and let them slap that cheek too. He said, lay down your life for your enemies. Choose the way of Jesus that loves people so deeply, even when they don't agree with you. This last week or two weeks ago, we went to Trinidad and I tell you, every door we went to, because we went to doors and told people about Jesus, we we went to homes. Every single home I went to, I got a 50 something year old Hindu man who has decided that all ways lead to God and he he really wanted to convince me of that truth. I got seriously like six or seven of those and no one else got him it seemed like. I just feel like God wanted me to listen to some Hindu man tell me about the way of the world. And every time they would start going on and on and on, they would not listen to me. I'd try to, like, get a word in. They're like, no, shut up. I'm going to tell you what I think because you're young and you just need to zip it. You're only 25. I'm 50. I know better than you. But anyways, they keep talking. And, and I just felt like every time Jesus would kind of stir my heart and say, Daniel, I know you have answers for all these questions. I know you have answers for all these thoughts. You could come back at them. But just listen to them. Look them in the eye and love them and let them talk. Let them get their whole spiel out of it. it makes them feel better. And then at the end, pray for them. Ask them if you, or just ask them if you can pray for them. And it was profound as these stubborn, prideful, 50-year-old men, every time at the end, I'd say, oh, you know, that's great, but can I pray for you? How their demeanor would change. All of a sudden, they were, you know, their shoulders would kind of relax a little bit. And they would just kind of like loosen up. And then I'd begin to pray for them. And it was just profound as at the end of our prayers, I, I would look in their eyes and I would just see that they were moved because I didn't try to argue with them. I just wanted to pray for them. I think this is what Jesus is calling us to on this campus, not to argue, not to try to just convince people, hey, you got to come to Chi Alpha, but to love people enough to listen to them and to care about what they think. And not to conform to it, though. Like, I didn't say, hey, you're right. I'm going to, you know, agree with you. So not to conform, but to just be loving and listen and and resist it. Does that make sense? I think Jesus is calling us to that. And finally, there's a third group of people, and that's those of us here tonight who, who do not have a, re- a relationship with Jesus, and you've never truly encountered God's love And maybe it took everything for you to come tonight. You didn't really feel like coming to some church group on a Tuesday night at eight o'clock when it's cold outside and it's supposed to be warm. What's going on? But you came. And maybe as you're coming, you had thoughts like, you know, I don't know if God really cares about me. I don't know if God really thinks I'm worth it. I don't know if God is really for me. But tonight, if I could say anything, I just wanna say this to you, that, that God is for you, that God loves you. That Jesus Christ came, we're going to celebrate this this weekend at Easter, that that Jesus Christ thought you were so worth it, that he came out of heaven, and he lived the human life, and he lived for 30 years, 33 years, just to be put on a cross, to die the death that you should have died. And now, all he wants from you is for you to give him your heart, and to follow him. That's all he wants. There's there's no magic prayer to pray. There's no religious saying, can incantation you have to do to be saved, but all you have to do is throw all your trust into Jesus and say, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. So tonight I want to give you opportunity to do that. If you could stand with me.